Thank you, brother. If you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible in the pew in front of you that you can use. And if you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that Bible home with you. My eyes got a little sweaty during that prayer. Hold on. Mark chapter 14. It's impossible not to take sides when it comes to Jesus. If you ask almost anyone that's ever heard of Jesus you'll find out what they think of Jesus. You'll find that almost no one who has encountered Jesus has done so without having rendered a judgment on Jesus. Our Muslim friends and neighbors would say that Jesus is merely a prophet. Some believe that Jesus was a shaman who practiced a mixture of witchcraft and charlatanism infused with Jewish and Egyptian philosophy. Because he went down to the Nile and got woke. Most of your neighbors in Decatur would say that Jesus is God, whether or not they actually believe that and live like it's true. Jesus has been on trial by the world from the days that he began to walk the earth until our own day today. And everyone who comes into contact with him must render a verdict on his life, on his teachings, on his identity. One of the main ways that people come to figure out what they think about Jesus is through their interactions with Jesus' followers. I think we all know people who have abandoned Christianity, who have abandoned the church, abandoned Jesus, because they claim that they've been hurt by someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, or maybe by several someone. But I think we also know someone who has put their faith in Christ because of the way that they've been loved and given grace by someone who is faithfully bearing witness to Jesus as a disciple. And I think these are the two themes that we encounter in today's text. And so I'm going to explore these two themes through four points. The four four points of this morning's sermon are this. The attack on Jesus the identity of Jesus, the witness of Jesus, and the vindication of Jesus. So let's read the text. Mark 14, starting in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about these, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 
But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Point number one, the attack on Jesus. It's amazing what men will do to get what they want, isn't it? Men and women, they will lie, they will cheat, they will steal, they will kill. In today's account, we see that these religious leaders, they desperately want to convict Jesus of blasphemy so that they can put him to death. It's obvious for the outset that the leaders here are not in it for truth, they're in it for blood. If you look back at verse 55 from the beginning of our reading, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. These religious leaders knew that they couldn't lawfully sentence Jesus to death without witnesses to his supposed blasphemy. And so they kind of conducted a mock trial. They allow and probably orchestrated witnesses who came forward bearing false testimony about Jesus. I heard, says one of the witnesses, I heard him say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it again in three days. Well, apparently this false testimony stuck, even though that's not even really what Jesus said. What Jesus actually said was, let this temple be destroyed, and in three days I will rebuild it. Nevertheless, in Mark chapter 15, as Jesus is hanging from the cross, the people who are walking by Jesus and heaping abuses on him are saying things like this, Oh, you who are going to tear down the temple and rebuild it, why don't you come down off the cross? However carefully or uncarefully these attacks on Jesus were carried out, they were unsuccessful. Verse 59 says, and even about these, their testimony did not agree. Jesus remained silent throughout these testimonies, almost 
wisely sort of allowing the lies to kind of unfold in their own timing. Jesus is smart enough to know that it's probably better for him if he doesn't take the stand to defend himself in his own trial. Have you ever seen someone, maybe as you're sitting in your car outside of a store, and they go and they push and push and push and push and push on a door until they realize finally that it's a pull door? And then they they finally pull on the door and they almost look shocked at how easy it was to get the door open when they just pulled. I think that's kind of what this scene feels like. This council is trying. It's pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing as hard as it possibly can to get someone to say something that will give them the evidence that they need to kill Jesus. But after pushing and pushing and pushing, finally the high priest He decides to pull. He simply stands up and asks Jesus point blank. Are you the son of the blessed? Blessed, of course, was an ancient Jewish way of referring to God. Actually, Jews still use that word all the time today. It was a way to refer to God the Father. So the the high priest finally just stands up and says, you know what, I'm just going to ask him. Are you the son of God? We'll come back to Jesus' answer in point number two, but... Before we do, we should just recognize that this is one big, elaborate, orchestrated attempt to try to discredit Jesus. Obviously, it fails. But we should also notice that every generation since this generation has been trying to discredit Jesus. And as a matter of fact, I think it's fair to say that the generation that we now live in is trying to discredit Jesus with more oomph, with more enthusiasm than any other generation before it whether it's the new atheist Richard Dawkins or Bart Ehrman's Jesus Seminar or even the Discovery Channel show The Hunt for the Real Historical Jesus. They're all trying to find a way to discredit Jesus. And they all end up looking equally foolish. There's no need to launch an investigation into the historical Jesus. Brothers and sisters, in God's Word we have the Gospels. And the Gospels are actually historical accounts. As a matter of fact, Luke, as he sets out to write his book, says, I'm trying to do history here. I'm trying to record the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We don't have to try to figure out who the historical Jesus is. He has told us who he is in his word. We don't need to try to figure out anything about Jesus other than what he's revealed. Who is his identity? He has told us all throughout the book of Mark, exactly who he is, from allusions to parables, and here in today's text, even a point-blank declaration. Jesus is the Son of God. And that is point number two, the identity of Jesus. Once the high priest finally gets down to business, and he asks Jesus point-blank, are you the Son of God? It's like Jesus is like, oh good, now we get to stop playing games. As you were lying about me and trying to coordinate efforts to kill me, I'm just going to stay silent. But now that you've asked me point blank, I'll, I'll respond in kind. Am I the Son of God? Yes. Yes, I am. This is the first time in Jesus' ministry that he has revealed himself so fully and so obviously. As readers of Mark's gospel, we've been in on the secret since the beginning. The very first verse of Mark reads like this. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
But for those who were actually walking alongside Jesus, encountering Jesus, attacking Jesus, his identity was never quite so clear. There's, there's been a secrecy motif throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus didn't want anyone to know who he was before the proper time. Jesus knew that if everyone found out his identity too soon, it would mean an abrupt ending to his ministry and a premature ending to his ministry. Jesus always knew that dying was in the cards for him. He always knew that it was part of the plan. But the timing really mattered. And so now, as Jesus is just hours away from the cross, it seems like the perfect time to just go ahead and reveal the fullness of his identity. He is the Son of God. As Jesus is revealing himself, it's important for us to remember that he's not merely revealing himself as the Messiah. You see, the reason why the high priest erupts in verse 63 and says, what more do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. It's not because Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, although he does claim that. But there are people before Jesus that came along and claimed to be the Messiah. There are even people who come along after Jesus who claim to be the Messiah. And none of them are sentenced to death and summarily executed. There's nothing blasphemous about claiming to be the Messiah. It may be foolish, it may be insane, but it's not blasphemous. Blasphemy is when you claim to be intimately connected with God in a way that you most certainly are not. Jesus is about to die because of his relationship and who he is in relation to his Father. And I can almost see the jubilation in the eyes of the high priests as he hears Jesus' plain and simple confession of his own identity. I mean, it's better than he could have ever imagined. It's more than he could have ever asked for. No prolonged trial, no protracted battle, no having to convince the council to move forward on execution despite conflicting testimonies. No more Jesus being clever, more clever than them, and answering them in such a way as to make them look foolish yet again. They don't have to go through any of that. Now they can simply say, you heard it. You heard it for yourselves. We've got him. The high priest had a bloodlust that was so great, he didn't even stop to consider, to ask the question, why Jesus would so readily admit something that would so certainly lead to his death. Most men in Jesus' position would deny, 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 hoping to escape with their lives. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what one of Jesus' followers does. It's easy to forget, but Peter has been not very far away from this whole trial the whole time. Verse 54 tells us that he is not that far away in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. Go there, look at verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Which leads us to point number three. The witness of Jesus. This text is full of people bearing witness to Jesus. The religious leaders are seeking witnesses against Jesus. 
Various people are coming forward bearing witness against Jesus. Jesus stands up and declares his own identity, declaring his, excuse me, bearing witness to himself. And so as it makes sense that as the camera kind of shifts and pans away from Jesus and back to Peter in the courtyard, that bearing witness is what we expect to find there, and we do. You see, the high priest had a servant girl. And as she was out in the courtyard, she recognized Peter. And when she did, she didn't just say, oh, hey, you're Peter. No, she says, you were with Jesus. Now, if you know the story, and you should because we just read it, Peter denies that. He denies being with Jesus. As a matter of fact, he denies it emphatically. He uses two different words in the Greek when he uses the word know. I don't know. I don't know him. One of them is a very intimate knowledge in the way that I would say I know my wife. Another one is kind of like a general knowledge and it's the way that I would refer to biology or woodworking, neither of which I actually know very much about. But it's it's Peter's way of emphatically denying his relationship with Jesus. It's like he's saying, I don't know him and I don't know anything about him. But the girl can't let it go. She can't let it go. She just knows that this guy was with Jesus. So she goes up to some of the bystanders and she goes, I'm telling you, this guy was with Jesus. He's one of them. Peter denies for a second time. And then finally, who knows, maybe it was five seconds, maybe it was five minutes. The bystanders, they begin to talk amongst themselves and they're like, yeah, that... That is the guy. And so they go up to Peter and they say, yes, yes, you are definitely one of his disciples. Do you remember uh, in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus calls the disciples to himself? If you remember the language that's used there to describe Jesus calling the disciples to himself, Mark says it like this. He says, and Jesus called them to be with him. To be with him. And so now, as this servant girl and as these bystanders look at Jesus and they look at Peter, they say, yes, you, you're with him. And Peter's response to that is to deny, to deny emphatically. Finally, he he gets to the point where he's basically calling down God's curses on himself. He's saying, I swear to God, may he kill me now if I'm actually the guy that you think I am, if I'm actually with Jesus, if I really am a disciple. Friends, I I don't know that there's any more emphatic way to deny Jesus than what we see here in the language of Peter. And every single one of us who reads this account of Peter should be less inclined to judge Peter and more inclined to identify with Peter. As our brother Russell Berger prayed so powerfully in our prayer of confession, we so often act just like Peter. When the time comes for us to faithfully bear witness to Jesus Christ in our lives as disciples, we so often fail to do so. Whether we laughed at an inappropriate joke on our job, even though we know we shouldn't have, but we didn't want to seem like we weren't one of the guys, or we failed to share our faith with our family members because it was just going to be an awkward situation, 
whatever the reason may be, we all too easily, often for reasons much less dangerous and inconvenient than the reason that Peter denied, we also deny our Master. Peter here was facing certain deaths. So often when we deny Jesus, when we fail to bear witness to Jesus, it's just because we're afraid of being embarrassed. We're afraid of experiencing social awkwardness. It's certainly been the case in my life. Why do we fail like this? Why does Peter fail in this way? I mean, Jesus told him and like prepared him in advance and said that this was going to happen. Jesus said, listen, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be drugged before councils and kings and you're going to have to bear witness to me. And it's going to hurt. It's going to cost you. But don't worry. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say in those moments. Don't be afraid. I don't think the Holy Spirit is responsible for what Peter is saying in today's text. So what's going on? I think in order to understand this, we have to go back to something that happened earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember the kind of proto-Great Commission where Jesus sent the disciples out on their very first mission to go cast out demons and to heal people and to preach the Gospel? They came back and they were on cloud nine. They were like, Jesus, man, you have no idea. We crushed it. We knocked it out of the park. We're killing it. And then they go, but hey, Jesus, there's like 5,000 people here who need to be fed. What are, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, well, feed them. You know, and that was Jesus' way of humbling them. Letting them know, hey, hey, guys, your strength is not your strength. Your strength is my strength. The only reason you could do anything is because I gave you the authority and the power to do something. That was Jesus' way of keeping them humble before he would finally one day send them out on the real Great Commission. I think that's what we see happening in today's text. Jesus has promised Peter and the rest of the disciples, one day you are going to go out and you are going to bear witness to me in the face of certain death and persecution. But before you do that, Peter, you need to learn that you can't trust in your own strength. It's as if Peter is going through his humbling phase with this little girl in the courtyard. Listen to the exact words of Jesus when he talks about what will happen. He says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus doesn't say, don't be afraid because you really got it locked down. You're a smart guy. Jesus doesn't say, don't be afraid because your oratorical skills are phenomenal and actually you're really good on your feet. Don't be afraid because you're a popular guy and people seem to want to listen to what you have to say. Don't worry about what you're going to say because you have all the evidence worked out and you can really defend your case. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. The only way, brothers and sisters, that we can faithfully bear witness to Jesus Christ, especially in the face of certain suffering and death, is if we are trusting fully in the power of the Spirit of God, not in our own. Anyone can be like Peter and talk a good game. If you remember, just a few short hours ago, Peter was saying, Jesus, I don't care what happens, no matter what, if everyone else denies you, and even if I have to die, I will never deny you. But now in the face of 
persecution, he sounds very different. We can talk a good game, brothers and sisters, but what happens when following Jesus, being with Jesus, bearing witness to Jesus really costs us something? It really costs us a friend or a relationship in our family or a job or that person that you thought for sure you were going to marry. In those moments where we are on the verge of experiencing great loss for the sake of bearing witness to Jesus, a big mouth and a proud heart will not serve us well. You know, it's been for quite some time socially advantageous to bear witness to Jesus in America, especially in the Christian South. But that's changing. And it's changing even here in the South. If you have children, you should know that they are probably going to grow up in a world in America where following Jesus, bearing witness to Jesus, costs them much and gains them nothing. Church will no longer be a social club, and they'll only be gathering with God's people on Sunday morning if their hearts are really regenerated by the Spirit of God. In that America, the Christians who bark like Peter will not last very long. But if we, like Jesus, can depend on our Father, if we can pray to our Father, if we can seek to be strengthened by the Spirit of our Father, and if we can manage to put to death our constant tendencies to trust in our own strength and in our own power, I think we'll be able to bear witness to Jesus. As Peter heard the rooster crow for the second time, he remembered the words of Jesus and he broke down in tears. Jesus' words, as usual, have come to pass. This is an embarrassing, crushing moment for Peter. It's complete and utter humiliation. And that's what happens when we trust in ourselves. That's what happens when we don't lean on God and trust in God. But if we really belong to Jesus, we should know that our humiliation is not the last word. For those who truly belong to Jesus, when he breaks us and humiliates us like this, humiliation always turns to exaltation. Not long after these events, after Jesus was buried and raised again, and after Jesus and the power of the Spirit restored Peter. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and preaches one of the most powerful sermons in all of church history, bearing faithful witness to his Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He stands up in the face of a bunch of Jews who would almost certainly kill him, and he says, you who killed Jesus, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. From Peter the Jesus denier to Peter the lion-hearted. Later in church history, we find that Peter dies the same death as his master, death on a cross. And he does so bravely and boldly. You know, whenever a new recruit joins the military... They have to go through basic training, and it's terrible. You get yelled at all day, every day. You do workouts all day, every day. You get very little food and even less sleep 
And you really are supposed to be broken down until you're just a shell. And the reason why the military does this is because it realizes it has to break all your civilian tendencies. You have to be broken down into nothingness so that the military can rebuild you and be used by you and use you in the way that it desires to use you. And in the same way, before God used Peter, he had to break him down to absolute nothingness so that he could use him. And it is here that Peter found his strength to truly bear witness to Jesus in his most embarrassing, most terrible, darkest hour. As the Apostle Paul says, our strength is in our weakness. And it's only when we realize that we are utterly helpless and utterly hopeless without Jesus that we can actually be used by Jesus with any kind of power. In the kingdom of heaven, brothers and sisters, we got some competition. In the kingdom of heaven, grace and power only pass through conduits of brokenness. Have you ever been broken by God? Are you currently being broken by God? If so, I want to encourage you to consider the fact that it's a grace in your life. It's possible that God is giving you the same gift that Jesus gave Peter when he broke him and humbled him. It's possible that God is trying to, he's trying to get you to realize your own insufficiency. He's trying to get you to stop doing everything in your own power, and your own strength, and to trust in him. Now, before moving on, I want to address one more aspect of Peter and his transformation because it really, it could not be more dramatic. You know, Paul comes along and has his moment. I think there's a little competition there. But it's just so amazing that we have to ask, what else is at play here? And I think there's another element, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What can take a jellyfished, loudmouth, boastful person like Peter and to- turn him into a lion-hearted, iron-spined witness to Jesus Christ in the face of certain suffering and death? I think it's because he saw his master die. And then he saw his master buried. And he knew that Jesus was dead for three days. And then he saw his resurrected body. And he ate with him. And he walked with him. And he talked with him. And the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything for Peter. The bottom fell out. Wouldn't it change everything for you? It changed everything for all the disciples. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived the perfect life. He died to pay the price for our sins. He was buried. And he was raised from the grave. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? I mean, it seems like in the life of Peter and other disciples, when they really believed it, it really changed their lives. They became completely different people. So I wonder, do we look more like pre-resurrection Peter or post? Individually and as a church. It's certainly something to consider. Final point, point number four. 
the vindication of Jesus. In this trial, we see the judge of the world is being judged by the world. Jesus is being brought up on charges by the very beings that he spoke into existence. And that takes a special kind of humility. I couldn't imagine Patience and Bella sitting me down and putting me on trial and then grounding me. Well, this is that times 10 million. But a reversal is coming, says Jesus. Look back at verse 62. Verse 62. And Jesus says, I am. That right there is a lot. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Here Jesus, for the second time in the book of Mark, refers to himself by quoting this messianic prophecy from the book of Daniel. And in so doing, he paints a picture of himself as the Messiah coming at the right hand of God to judge the world. It's obvious that the rest of the authors of the New Testament understood this about Jesus. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In John 5.22, Jesus himself says that the Father was given, has given all judgment to the Son. Paul in Romans 2 says that God will judge the world through his Son, Jesus, and so on and so on and so on. So in the story, we have the one who is being judged telling those that are judging him that one, back, one day he's going to come back and he's actually going to be the judge. His name will be vindicated. All right, kids, listen up. Patience, Clay, Kaya, Lily, other Lily. Yeah, all the kids, listen up. I'm going to teach you what vindicated means, okay? It's a big word, but here's what it means. Do you know how sometimes you're telling stories to other kids? You're talking about maybe how you jumped over a fence or how you drank a whole gallon of milk. I don't really know. I've forgotten what kids do. But you're telling a story and your friends don't believe you. They say, that's not true. You didn't do that. And you say, yes, I did. And they go, no, I don't believe you. You didn't do that. And then, and then one day maybe your mom or your dad or another friend comes along and they say, hey, you remember that time you hit those three home runs, or you jumped over that fence, or you drank that whole gallon of milk. Wasn't that crazy? And you look at the friend who didn't believe you, and you go, see, I told you so. I told you I did it. That's what vindication means. That's what vindication means. You see, kids, Jesus was telling everyone, especially the people who hated him, he was telling them, listen, I'm God's son. This is who I am. And they didn't believe Jesus. But Jesus is saying, one day I'm going to get up from the grave and then I'm going to come back with my dad. And when I come back, I'm going to say, I told you so. That's vindication. So how will he find us on that day, brothers and sisters? Will he find us being faithful witnesses and friends? Or will he find us like these religious leaders, as arrogant. Arrogant enough even to render a judgment on the God who made us. You know, it may be hard for some of us to act like, or to admit that sometimes we act more like God's enemies than His friends. What I love about this account is that it shows us the real power of grace. It shows us the Lord and how He takes men who deny Him explicitly, consistently, repeatedly, overtly, 
men who deny him. And then he breaks them. But then he empowers them. And then he uses them for the glory of his name. That's what grace does. If you're a Christian, that's what grace is doing in your life even now, even today. One of the major pillars of the Christian church was an apostate apostle. Don't you love that Christianity doesn't try to hide its pockmarks? It doesn't try to airbrush away all of its flaws, especially in its leaders? This account shows us a perfectly flawed sinner. And then later in the story, we see that this sinner is changed by the grace of God so that this sinner can be used by the strong arm of God. The Bible doesn't show us perfect people. The Bible shows us people who have been changed by grace. And I think this quote from James Edwards is probably a good note for us to close on. The church can be honest about sin, even the sins of an apostate apostle, because it is so convinced of grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as a church, you would help us to be so convinced of grace. We pray that you would help us to defend and confirm the gospel against attacks on it. We pray that you would help us to readily identify your son as he truly is, as he's revealed himself. We pray that you would strengthen us to bear witness to Jesus, even in the face of persecution and suffering. And Father, we pray that you would help us to trust that one day your son, Jesus Christ, will come back and vindicate his name and take us home. Amen.